the whole point of this fellowship is to provide opportunities for teachers to to learn about what governmental programs are out there. There are so many resources out there that I had zero knowledge of before I came into this world of AEF. And the goal is to give them that bag of resources for them to take back to their classroom, back to their fellow teachers, back to their communities and say, hey, I had this incredible opportunity. I was led on the most amazing PD experience of my life, harnessed by this fellowship. I got to be in spaces and be the voice of teachers. Now I get to come back and enrich my own students. This is the O-Rise Feature Cast. Join host Michael Holtz for conversations with ORISE experts on STEM workforce development, scientific and technical reviews, and the evaluation of radiation exposure and environmental contamination. You'll also hear from ORISE research program participants and their mentors as they talk about their experiences and how they are helping shape the future of science. Welcome to the ORISE FeatureCast. Welcome to the O-Rise FeatureCast. As ever, it's me, your host, Michael Holtz, in the Communications and Marketing Department at the Oak Ridge Institute for Science and Education. And if you're a listener to this podcast and a relatively recent listener, you know today we are talking about one of my favorite programs, the Albert Einstein Distinguished Educator Fellowship Program. Um, And I have a panel of guests with me today. I have four people. I'm going to let them introduce yourselves. And Amy, I'm going to start with you. Hey, y'all. I'm Amy Schapansky. I am originally from Detroit, um, and then I moved to New York City about seven or eight years ago. And I am an Albert Einstein Fellow this year with the Department of Energy, uh, previously a science teacher. Excellent. Gretel, please introduce yourself. I am Gretel von Bargen. I teach International Baccalaureate Biology in a suburb of Seattle, and I love teaching biology. I've been doing it for about 20 plus years, and I was an Einstein Fellow in 2017 and 18 at the um, Department of Energy. Awesome. Pascal, welcome. All right. Aloha, everybody. Um, I am a middle school science teacher and an NGSS curriculum coordinator here on the Big Island of Hawaii. I now for this is my 36th year of teaching middle school. And I was an Einstein fellow at the Department of Energy 2018-2019. Awesome. And Kelly Day. Hi. Tell us who you are. Hi, I'm Kelly Day. I uh, am was a seventh grade math teacher from Indiana, and I was the um, Einstein Fellow at the Department of Energy in 2020, 2021 area. Yeah. Awesome. And Kelly, you are now with the Albert Einstein Fellowship Program. So tell me, um, if you would, just for folks who may not have heard my beautiful conversations with Jill before, What is the Albert Einstein Distinguished Fellowship Program? It is a program that takes the country's best STEM educators and plugs them in a governmental agency for an 11-month placement 
where they get to work on education policy and initiatives and programs. Uh, there's also some fellows that are placed in Congressional Hill placements and get to work for a congressional office for that time. And so I have a very, very unique opportunity to have been a teacher been and then selected to be an Einstein fellow. And now I get to work with the program uh, through the Department of Energy still, which is very, very unique. Uh, but I'm very happy to be here with these other Department of Energy fellows, because between you and me, it's the best placement, I think, personally. Uh, and I, it's just it's such a great program and it's managed by the wonderful Jill Lachana, who's on here with us today. And so I I'm so thankful for every opportunity to meet these incredible, credible educators from across the country. Awesome. Um, and Amy, you and I are sort of doing co-hosting duty today, um, which I'm really excited about. Um, but I want to get the ball rolling with um, a first question about making the transition from the classroom to the fellowship and then back to the classroom. Um, what was that like for you? Um, Pascal and Gretel, I'll start with the two of you. Gretel, loved, you want to join? Sure. <laughs> I loved being an Einstein fellow, but I did miss classroom teaching a lot when I was in Washington, D.C. And so for me, being an Einstein fellow helped reiterate my commitment and passion for being in the classroom. And it came at a time in my career when, you know, I'd, I'd been teaching for 15 or 16 years at that point, and I wasn't sure whether it was going to be my continuing path or if I was going to find a new way. But um, being out of the classroom as a fellow helped reiterate how much I love classroom teaching. And so for me, I was um, excited to return to my classroom. And I was fortunate enough that my school district was super supportive of me being an Einstein fellow and maintained um, my specific job position for me. So I was able to leave the classroom and return to the exact same classroom, exact same teaching role. And um, so I was pretty lucky in that regard. That was, um, from what I understand, not a not a common scenario for a lot of people. Gotcha. How about you, Pascal? Um, I would probably echo exactly what Gretel said. I really, really enjoyed the opportunity to move across the entire continental United States to a completely different foreign location for me. I grew up in Hawaii. And so DC was was novel, but I I was able to participate in as an Einstein. Jan Tyler said, you know, get out there and do that. Check out everything and, you know, go and explore and participate. And I'm really glad I did because I knew just like Gretel, I wanted to go back into the classroom. That was without hesitation. I knew that I was going to be doing that. And so when I came back to Hawaii, um, you know, it, I also landed. And of course, that year was the year where the COVID shutdown happened in fourth quarter. So it was a really strange year. But prior to that, just being back in the classroom with all this new knowledge and um, energy that I had gathered from the experience, I think bolstered me to just, you know, consider, all right, my next decade in education. So it's it was a really, really uh, valuable experience. And Amy, I know you are still in the midst of your fellowship, 
Um, what do you hope to take back to the classroom? Oh, gosh. Um, I hope I take back this sense of clarity that Gretel and Pascal are talking a lot about. Um, I know we'll probably get here, but I was drawn to the Einstein Fellowship because I was and still am kind of at a crossroads in teaching. I've been teaching for about 10 years now. And very similar to what both Gretel and Pascal were saying is, I don't really know what the next step is. I'm not committed to leaving the classroom and saying like, yes, what's the next thing? But I'm also not fully committed to going back. So what I'm looking for is not a specific thing, but more in this amorphous kind of mental clarity that I'm hoping at some point just rains down from the sky on me. Uh, I'm still waiting for that mental clarity to come. Uh, but hopefully uh, by July when the fellowship is over, I have some clarity on what that is. There'll be a sign or something that says. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Maybe like an actual physical sign that says like, Amy Shapansky, please work here. I'll take as clear as I can get. I, I don't know if you've done that yet, Amy, but uh, I think one thing that was pivotal to that clarity and that defining moment came later in the fellowship um, when we all worked with Jill individually on our um on our resumes our vitae etc and those conversations for me were the ones that supported these big giant broad ideas that i had that i wanted to take back and do even though i was also still going to be going back in the classroom so i suspect that that time is coming for you and uh that jill will facilitate that time she did a really good job with me with that I see nodding heads from Gretel and Kelly both. So Gretel. <laughs> I would add that in my case, I always knew I wanted to return to the classroom. And so for me, I didn't, I, being an Einstein fellow helped reiterate that decision. But during the interview process, I was actually concerned because so many of the alumni and or people who were part of the um, group that was there in the interview weekend had left classroom teaching after being an Einstein fellow. And that rose red flags for me because I was not I don't I, I didn't want to leave classroom teaching. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I asked during my interview what is going on? Why is everyone leaving after this fellowship? Because that's if that's what's happening, I'm out. I don't want that. And it was very much reiterated in, in the interview that the Einstein Fellowship is not designed to transition people out of classroom teaching. Some people do leave the classroom after their fellowship, but that's not the intent of the Einstein Fellowship. The intent is to bring educators, have educators work on their professional growth, explore opportunities, learn information that they can then take back to their classroom. And that's exactly what I got out of it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Kelly, talk more about that. Cause I'm, again, I'm seeing you shake your head, nod, nod your head a lot. Yeah. Response to what Gretel and Pascal are saying. Well, I think that that's the, the whole point of this fellowship is to provide opportunities for teachers to to learn about what governmental programs are out there. There are so many resources out there that I had zero knowledge of before I came into this world of AEF. Um, and the goal is to give them that bag of resources for them to take back to their classroom, back to their fellow teachers, back to their communities and say, hey, 
I had this incredible opportunity. I was led on the most amazing PD experience of my life, uh, harnessed by this fellowship. I got to be in spaces and be the voice of teachers. And now I get to come back and enrich my own students and enrich the teachers uh, in my school and beyond. And so that to me is the heart of the program. Um, and I would love it if all of our teachers went back. Um, I know though, like I am a teacher who didn't go back, mm-hmm. um, but that was completely unexpected. Uh, I was in Gretel's shoes of like, I'm doing this for a year and then I'm going back. I never expected for uh, the journey to end where it did. Um, however, that it, it happens sometimes when you kind of when you see something, you can't unsee it. So there's, you know, that opportunity sometimes presents itself. But I do think that the heart of this whole program is to enrich teachers lives so that it can get back to students. Um, awesome. Amy, do you want to tee up the next question? Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm looking at um, some of the questions that we just kind of had on the docket. And I'm, I want to know, um, so as we previously mentioned at the beginning of this, I'm a DOE fellow right now. And I'm having like this wild and crazy experience where every day is an adventure. And I would love to hear more about Gretel and Pascal and Kelly as well. Kelly, you're just a more recent, not that I'm not equally as interested, um, but I would like to hear what your experiences were like working at the Department of Energy. What were you doing on a daily basis? What were you seeing? What was like, what was really getting you going? I'll start. I, I um, took took me some time to transition to the time that was available for me to work on my own professional development. I obviously had some DOE projects that I was working on, but as a taskmaster and to-do list checker, I would get that work done. And then I would have all this time to like invest in what I wanted to do or learn about. And I used it. And it was, so after that transition of recognizing, oh, I I can fill this time, I would fill my time with exploring um, the museums and the Library of Congress. And I was a big fan of the uh, National Botanical Gardens. And I would explore these places, keeping in mind I was returning to the classroom, looking for ways I could connect what I was learning personally, but also how I could bring that back to my students. So I worked a lot on curriculum development and curriculum um, kind of enhancement so that I could bring back what I was learning to the to the classroom. And again, I would echo what Gretel had to say. I, I felt the same way coming from a full-time classroom, you know, position where you've got, you know, five periods a day, boom, 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 recess, lunch, after school, meetings, blah, blah, blah. it was very strange coming into a job after 30 plus years of, um, okay, so your time is your own, <laughs> go to it. Here's the, the big projects, you know, you need to do, but then there's the rest of this time. So I did very much the same thing. I did a lot of uh, a lot of exploring different kinds of curriculum things because I knew that was coming up for us here in Hawaii. 
um, the implementation and adoption of the NGSS and specifically middle school curriculum. And then um, like her, I also, you know, I went to Alexandria and went to the patent office and went to workshops at the uh, all kinds of workshops, actually, at the Library of Congress. And um, yeah, went to panel meetings for the National uh, Science, not National Science Foundation, but the National Academy. And so super informative. I think, though, one of the biggest really huge ahas that I ended up having, I visited, um, I think, five different national labs. And on one of the visits, I uh, got connected with somebody at Los Alamos. And then Jan came to me and said, all right, Pascal, so I have this opportunity. Do you want to go to New Mexico and work with this um, nuclear physicist for her summer physics camp? And I just looked at her and went, what? <laughs> okay, totally not my background, but all right. And I did it. Well, to this day, I now uh, do that camp in partnership with her. And we're finally kind of come to the ultimate dream that we both had after that year, which was to bring Hawaii girls to New Mexico to participate in the camp live. So in the interim, Hawaii has been a partner with Los Alamos Lab and now Sandia and Los Alamos to do um, this young women's physics camp. And that would not have been available. You know, I would never mm. have known about it. I would never have known about the internships available through the, you know, the labs, et cetera. None of that. I would never have known. And it really gave me the impetus to come back to Hawaii and bring that knowledge back for my community, not just young women, but all of our students, you know, that there's these amazing opportunities out there that they don't even know about. So um, a lot of my day to day was really just developing all those connections and then the curriculum. Mm. Very cool. So Kelly, did oh, you want to add? Yeah. I just think that's so cool that you started this, kind of journey as a fellow and it just leads beyond. And I think so many fellows have those stories of just, again, kind of what I said before, once you're like aware of these opportunities, it's, you can't unlearn what you now know. And what an amazing platform to kind of springboard. Even if you go back to the classroom, you have, you still have all of these things uh, presented to you. I know for me, when I came in, I knew very little about the Department of Energy. I don't know about you two. I was a seventh grade math teacher, so science wasn't really part of my curriculum. And in fact, when I like applied, there was, I thought originally, there's no way in the world I'm going to end up at the Department of Energy. I am not a nuclear physicist. All I knew about the DOE was like the Manhattan Project, which was so outside of my realm of any expertise or knowledge. And so, but you enter into this space and you realize, oh, the DOE has all of these labs and all of these scientific discoveries. And there's the whole office of science, which I hadn't heard of before ever. And uh, I think it's really cool that you got to visit so many labs. Gretel, did you get to visit any of the labs? I did. I went to two. I went to Brookhaven and Pacific Northwest. Nice. Very nice. So what for Gretel and Pascal and well, and Amy, you too, like, what is it? So I know that applying for the fellowship is a relatively arduous process, right? What is it about the Albert Einstein Distinguished Educator Fellowship that drew you and 
kept you in the process and that, you know, what is it about that was like, I need to be part of this. What was that thing? I had a former fellow who was also a teacher of the year, the same year I was a teacher of the year. And she emailed me and said, you must apply for this. Twist. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but she's like, no, not yeah, but you are a shoe in. you need to do this. And so she actually was very supportive through the application process. Um, yeah. So <laughs> a former fellow who just happened to be a colleague in a different networks. That was gotcha. what got me. I was uh, the exact opposite. I didn't know anyone or have any connection at all. I just liked the challenge of it and the opportunity for an adventure. I want to keep learning and try new things. And I like the idea of bringing my family out and having a year of, you know, trying something new and learning new stuff. And um, I knew it would be hard. And so I thought, oh, I'll, I'll try. And then it worked. So. Awesome. So my, about for you? Oh, yeah. My, my experience was similar to Gretel. So I knew nothing about the fellowship. Um, one of my college roommates actually messaged me. Um, he is an astrophysicist and he was like looking for science jobs and he came across this and he's like, oh, dang, I'm not qualified, but I think Amy is. So he sent me this email and uh, the application was due like a week later or something. I said, okay, well, maybe not this year. And I set a reminder in my Gmail to apply for the next year. And I had almost forgotten about it. And then the email came from myself to apply to this thing, which I was like, oh, yeah, that thing. <laughs> so I started applying. And then similar to what Gretel was saying, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is like pretty intense. And so it almost became like a challenge. Um, growing up, my dad gave me this really awesome advice of like win the opportunity and you be the one to say no. So I'm like, OK, might as well apply. And then I applied and I got asked for an interview and I'm like, well, might as well go to the interview. Like if something else happens, like I can be the one to say no. And then when <laughs> this leads me to another question I want to ask all of you too. But when I was told that I was accepted, I was 100% convinced that there had been a mistake. Um, I was like, no, this like can't be accurate there's no way all of these people are wildly qualified. This has to be a mistake. Um, we were told that when you get accepted, there's going to be a call and like you have to be ready to get the call. And for some reason, I never found out like why this happened, but I never got the call. I only got an email. So I was convinced this was a mistake. They meant to send this to like an Ann Smith instead of an Amy Schapansky or something. So I emailed the fellowship saying, can you please confirm this is true? Um, if so, I accept, but I also don't want to embarrass myself by saying, oh yeah, for sure. And then saying, uh, actually like our, my bad. I didn't mean to send we, that to you. We meant that for someone else. So yeah. Sorry. Um, <laughs> the other Schapansky on the list. Yeah. The other Schapansky who's applied. Right. right. Uh, <laughs> so that would lead me to my question of what was the process like for all of you when you applied and eventually were accepted into the fellowship? Was it um, kind of disbelief like me or were you feeling very confident? Uh, yeah, I'd love to hear y'all talk a little bit about that. <laughs> That's hilarious, that story, by the way. <laughs> um, I had 
<laughs> I I was I was pleasantly honored and and surprised that I had been selected. I was a little bit more of like surprise and I told my husband and he was just like, "Well, yeah, of course." And so for me it was like, "Oh, okay." There wasn't a lot of like surprise on his part, but on my part I was pleasantly surprised and I was actually classroom teaching in this room when I got the phone call that I had been selected and I stepped out into the hall unsure and I uh, came back in and couldn't tell anyone at that time because it was still secret. And so I had to like pretend nothing had happened and just keep on teaching. But it was everything's it was fine. It's surprise. fine. Everything's fine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so I have a funny so the day that I got the call that I was going to be an Einstein Fellow of the Year was March like 11th of 2020. And oh, I don't know man. if you know what else was happening that year uh, <laughs> during that particular week, but I got called right at the time where we were having the students clean out their lockers because we were oh. sending them home that day man. for maybe a week. But go ahead and take all of your stuff home just in case. And the kids are cleaning out their lockers and I get this call to be on the fellowship and I start crying and one of the kids comes up to me and is like, it's okay, Miss Day, we'll be back soon. And I was like, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. And I'm like in my head, like, I, there's just so many emotions going on right now. I don't even know what to react to. Um, but little did I know that that was gonna be the last day of teaching for me, which makes some of that feel very unfinished and hard sure. because I, we that year was unfinished felt unfinished and then I went into the fellowship and I didn't go back to the classroom and for someone who loved teaching as much as I do and did it's been very weird transition to not have that anymore um not to say you know anyways so but but that was my story of like wait the world shutting down and I'm going to be moving to DC next year maybe <laughs> if the program happens at all during a pandemic. I mean, yeah, there was not even any of that. And so, and also this was, so I had applied the year before. Okay. And didn't get it. Um, and so I'm like the poster child for like, try, try again. Like if at first you don't succeed. My, <laughs> but my first year, I, I applied and I said I was only interested in congressional positions. Uh, because again, kind of what I had said earlier, I couldn't conceive what I could contribute to like NASA or the Department of Energy or any of these established organizations that I was like, I am not smart enough to be in those spaces. And I cut myself short because I couldn't, I also didn't understand that they had education programs, all of these, all of these federal agencies. Mm. Um, and so I kind of understood what Congress did. And I was like, well, I might be smart enough to help out there. Um, uh, but I got into the like interview system and I heard about like the Department of Energy. And I think I was talking to Pascal, who's on here, um, and she was telling me about all the cool things that she was working on at the D Department of Energy, like the Science Bowl, which is now like my entire life. Uh, uh, and I, I just was like, well, well, I can do that. Like what? Like I want to be a part of that. And I remember thinking that first time, like, I kind of hope I don't get this. So I can reapply to be in a spot that's actually more perfect for me than on the hill. Mm. 
So, um, so anyways, that's a long story. I did not mean to go on that tangent, but when I got that call the second time, I was expecting to not get it again. And then I was called the week of like, you know, all of this, the world. (laughs) I want to say something about what, what you were mentioning, Kelly, that I think was so, so important that, um, I remember Jill saying this at the interview weekend that really stuck with me. I had a similar feeling of like, I don't really know what I have to offer to the department of energy. Um, Like maybe I could have like have some things to offer for like USGS or Congress or something. But Jill had this really great kind of idea where she said, if you've gotten to this point, all of you are definitely qualified. If you are not accepted, it's just because there's not a good match for you. And I thought like, how is the Department of Energy ever going to be a match for me? But after going through it for a couple of months now, but even after a few weeks, I started thinking like, this is the actually the exact placement for me. Um, if I was, you know, interviewing for another place, I don't think I would have been as good of a match. Um, so for anyone who's int- potentially interested in applying, um, I know it sounds kind of cliche, but trust the process. Um, there's a reason that you are being matched with certain agencies. Um, just wanted to add that in there. Cause that was something that I, I still think about um, on a weekly basis. Yeah, and for me, um, when I flew to the interview weekend to D.C. Um, that first morning, um, I discovered that there was another person from Hawaii here, and I was like, oh, no, they're never going to choose two people from Hawaii. They're only going to choose one. And then I found out that I was going to have three different interviews, and I was even more nervous because of that. I felt like, oh, my gosh. And so, ironically, my last interview was on the Tuesday. So everybody left on Monday and here I am schlepping it from the hotel Tuesday morning and I get there really, really early and Beth isn't there. Nobody's there. (laughs) I'm like, Oh my God, I'm at the department of energy building. And then finally Gretel showed up with Jennifer and they're like, Oh, it'll be fine. You know, I'm like, and then after that interview, I had to get on a plane and leave and go back. And so honestly, like you, I mean, I did not expect that I just was like okay and then I got the phone call at 2 30 a.m in the morning because the time does not change for people in Hawaii period and so Beth was like and I will be calling at and she absolutely did and so anyway and, and then I had then I had an opportunity where I got to choose so I had two offers and right at that moment in time I just felt like you know what the department of energy is, is, is the one for me. And I didn't know if it was going to be the one, to be honest with you, I felt a little intimidated by it, but especially coming from middle school. And so, um, yeah, it was just like a flash and boom. Okay. Department of energy it is. And, and then everything just moved forward from there, moving across the country. I could not fly across the country to come and look at apartments or anything. And so, Um, I, I, I did some research online, found what I wanted and then had the, the resident manager person go upstairs to the apartment with their phone. And I said, I just need to know what's outside the windows. I don't care about the apartment. I need to know what I can see outside the windows. (laughs) And, and it has an indoor pool because I need to be in the water every day. And so 
basically she was like, okay. So she went upstairs and took, you know, took her phone and here we are at a six hour time difference. And I'm like, okay. So I rented it sight unseen, <laughs> moved to DC, um, you know, and had court furniture, um, install furniture for me. I was in Hawaii and they were calling me at, I don't even remember five o'clock in the morning. Where did you want this? And they didn't even realize they were talking to somebody in Hawaii. Right. And I just said, okay. And, you know, gave them some directions and they put furniture where I thought it should be based on what I had seen in the camera phone and yeah. And then arrived in DC. So the process I think was, um, was really revealing. And I agree with you, Amy, about what Jill said. I, I you know, we all start that the fellowship, I think, with imposter syndrome. And as the fellowship goes along, we gain confidence in our different roles and um, basically kind of slough off that imposter syndrome and become comfortable in the um, in the AFE role or AEF role that we are becoming and have landed in. And that's all about growth. So it was it's a, really an, a process that is pretty phenomenal like beyond national board certification, et cetera, mm. which is very reflective and phenomenal. This was like oh, way beyond that. What do you guys think drives the, um, the imposter syndrome that you feel at the beginning? Is it, I'm only a teacher? Is it, um, and I mean, I know yeah. how important teachers are, but is it, you know, I'm just a teacher. I don't deserve to be here. I, you know, you know, Interestingly enough, one of the fellows that was the same year as me, um, Kelly Taylor, she is a, um, a STEM resource teacher in an elementary school, and she has her, um, her doctorate, her EDD. And okay. she said something really funny to me, because I have my PhD, but I, in Hawaii, the, you know, it's all about shame. It's not about, you know, honor, you know, I'm this and I'm that. It's actually the opposite. And so anyway, at one point she goes, Pascal you need to be proud of who you are as a teacher. You worked hard for that doctorate. You know, my kids call me Dr. Taylor, even the kindergartners. And I was like, really? And, and I thought, wow. And that just completely clicked my mind frame. Like, click, you did work hard to do this. You mm. did work hard to get here. And you deserve to be where you are right now doing what you're doing. So now, consequently, my students know me as Mrs. Dr. P. Which is my <laughs> I love it. I would say for me, it's just the uncertainty about what I should be doing and wanting mm. to make sure I was doing enough. And it's not at all the sense of I'm quote unquote, just a teacher. Cause I don't feel that at all. I feel like teaching is probably the most important job I could be doing, sure. but it is, um, when you get there, it's so different from the day-to-day -day of classroom teaching that it's just the uncertainty of, am I doing what I'm supposed to be mm. doing? And is it enough for what you want from me and from what I want out of this situation? And then once I came to terms with, I'm just doing everything I'm supposed to be doing and it is enough and I'm going to take advantage of everything else, then you know I sloughed off any uncertainty and just owned the, the, the time. Awesome. Because right, you get sort of disconnected. Well, you do get disconnected from sort of the hamster wheel of I've got to do lesson plans and I've got to grade papers and I've got to, you know, so you're always doing something. Whereas and you, have you get to the opportunity a, to stop, right? And you have to be a person 
at least for the DOE placement, you have to be a person who can own your own destiny of time. Mm -hmm. And if you're a person who is going to need micromanagement, then this is not the right placement for you (laughs) because that you have to be able to use your time productively for what you think it's going to be best utilized. And that can be uncomfortable for a lot of people who are used to, to serving a, a function and then getting, you know, recognized for it. And so it's just uncomfortable at first to recognize that you're working for you. At that yeah. Point. yeah. I think Kelly. I, I just wanted to say like, Gretel, you just blew my mind of putting words to something that I haven't been able to recognize before with that question that Michael gave of like, why do we feel this imposter syndrome? I never thought about that connection of it has to do with us feeling like we're contributing enough. And it also, that is connected to the culture of education where we are asked to contribute more sometimes than is physically possible. And so we're constantly, we're just working, 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 and it feels like it's never enough. And then you move into this new space and you do what is asked of you and it is enough. And you're suddenly like, wait, wait, what? Like, no, I should be doing more. I should be doing faster. I should do, you know, and um, having that freedom and to not be set by those, like the limitations of a bell schedule telling us, okay, time to do the next thing, time to do the next thing is terrifying and kind of uh, stifling to some of the teachers who enter into this like arena. Um, But as time goes on, you start to learn your own worth and you see what you can contribute and you see how valued even what you think is like a little contribution. Cause when you're comparing it to the mountain that you typically have to contribute, you're like, wait, I just did this little thing. And you guys are thinking like, it's the most brilliant thing, <laughs> you know, it's, it's fascinating. I don't, did you guys get to do an interagency working group while you were fellows? Kind of, <laughs> kind of. Kind of. Yeah, kind of, but not really sort of maybe the beginnings of that. It was like just the beginning of those conversations. And anyways, I was part of an interagency working group and I feel like I contributed. I I contributed a lot and it was a wonderful space to be in, but a time, what, what would have been like, it, it was amazing to people in the federal space what I was able to produce in a short amount of time. Hmm. Um, we'll just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they underestimate teachers. We, you know, when we talk about multitasking, we are the kings and queens of that in the universe of time, I tell you. And yeah, being able to just produce this, that, this, that, and this, and what? I still have three more hours? Oh, okay. Well, let me see what else I can do there. <laughs> Right. Like, I think I remember they're like, can you do this? And I did it in a week. And they were like, oh, we were expecting a timeline of like three months. And I was like, oh, like when when teachers are asked to do something, it's like usually by the end of the school day. Like, I need it yesterday. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. That happens a lot, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Um, For all of you sort of going in the Wayback Machine, what got you interested in being educators in the first place? I was never interested in being an educator. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I felt like I got sucked into the black hole of education. Um, 
I feel like in a delightful way, I hope. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's why I ended up in it because I kept trying to veer from the path and always getting brought back to the path. Um, I, I, I did my undergrad um, at Wayne State University in Detroit, the greatest university ever. Um, And I had, uh, I double majored in biology and environmental science. And my plan was to um, go get a PhD. Um, And while I was in college, I was working in a bunch of research labs. And I was also um, doing this thing called supplemental instruction. So essentially acting as like a pseudo kind of TA. And I found myself really getting excited to go do the supplemental instruction piece um, and then not being super excited to go to the lab. And it was actually one of my students who said to me like, hey, Amy, what are you going to do when you graduate? And I said, well, I think I'm going to go get a PhD. And she said to me, well, you've been really great at this. I think you'd be a really good teacher. And kind of serendipitously, that same day, I got an email from... Um, the Woodrow Wilson Teaching Fellowship, now the Citizens and Scholars Institute. Um, and it said, you know, apply for this program. Um, if you teach for three years in a high needs district, um, we'll pay for your master's degree. And I said, well, I can do anything for three years. I'll do this while I get all my PhD stuff together. And like day one, I started this program and I'm like, oh, I need to change my whole life course. I think like teaching is actually what I want to do. And it was always one of those things. It's like, I'm going to do it for like a few years. And then like a few years would go by and I'm like, I'm going to do it for like a couple more and then maybe go get a PhD. Um, I went as far as applying for a PhD program, getting accepted to a PhD program and saying, Actually, I'm not going to do the PhD. I'm going to keep teaching. So I keep, like I said, getting sucked back into the black hole vortex that is teaching in a very lovely, amazing, great, wonderful black hole it is. But um, yeah, I never planned to be here this long and I think I'm stuck. (laughs) (laughs) But you had just calling back to our earlier part of the conversation, clarity. (laughs) I mean, clarity. I I still don't know if I have clarity, man. We're we're trying to we're doing it one day at a time, one year at a time, (laughs) depending on the gravitational flux of this black hole. You know, maybe we'll end up in a different part of the universe, but but it's one day at a time. We're gonna see where the universe moves me. There you go. For me, I always wanted to share my excitement and passion for science. I love science. I love science through high school. I love science through college. I was actually going, like Amy, I was going to apply to med school and was on my way to do that. And I took a, for an elective, my senior year, of my biology degree, I took a, a teaching elementary school science class from a professor who I really loved. And at the end of that, she, she called me up. She said, I need, I need to meet with you. And I was like, oh, no, Dr. Hapai, how come? And she's like, oh, no, we'll talk about it. She was real gruff, right? And I'm like, oh, oh, no, what did I do? So I go to this meeting and she's like, I hear that you're thinking about, you know, you're going to apply to medical school. And she goes, I don't know why you're doing that. And I went, what? And she goes, you need to be a teacher. I mean, if you haven't figured that out yet, um, you need to be a teacher. And I said, but uh, that, and she goes, 
and we have the program. So this is what you should do. And so she very kindly twisted my arm behind my back and said, just go try this. And then from that moment on, um, kind of like what Amy said, you know, time moves forward. And I think for me, the impetus to remain in science education has to do with the energy that I get from my kids every year. And honestly, that was the one massive big thing that I missed when I was in DC mm. was the energy from my students. But here, here's the irony. The irony was that I had several of them working on um, science fair research projects. So even though I was in DC, I was in constant communication with them. And I ended up presenting um, two workshops at ICEF. And of course, those two students happened to, of course, then be finalists there. So it was really a nice connection back, at least for me, um, to the energy from my students. But uh, yeah, a professor telling you, hello, you're going the wrong path. You need to go this way, period. And you better do it. And this is how you're going to do it. <laughs> oh. Anyway, every time I see Dr. Hopai, who's still around, she's like, I'm so glad you stayed in education and science education. So there you go. <laughs> and Pascal, I'm hearing that the teaching multitasking never really stops. No, <laughs> it does not. I mean, now I even have more going on than I probably ever have in my life. Um, I decided to, uh, because of Jill, actually, we had a long conversation about you know, bringing back what I really wanted to do. And what, what I really, really wanted to do was work with elementary teachers to um, really beef up their, their opportunities to offer science. And COVID actually ended up um, bringing that all to fruition. Ironically, a very good friend of mine, um, I, I made a comment in June of 2020. Oh, man, our poor kids, you know, they have nothing and nothing to do. Nobody can go anywhere, whatever. And wouldn't it be great if we could give them like a backpack of science awesomeness? And so my friend who happens to be the executive director for a, a community foundation calls me the next day and goes, well, Pascal, could you just make a hundred of them? I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, a hundred bags of awesomeness. I'm like, you're kidding, right? He goes, no, I got the funding. So that has morphed into envelopes of science awesomeness. And um, along with teaching science in my classroom, I also work with 54 elementary teachers in grades three through six, and I produce um, materials and supplies and packets for the students, envelopes of science awesomeness for about 2,100 students here in, um, Ooh, on the east side of Hawaii. Gosh. I don't think that, yeah, so I wouldn't, that would not have happened, I think, if I had not come out of the fellowship with this renewed passion that I started with, which is mm -hmm. I want kids to do science. I want kids to enjoy science. And so, yeah, it's still going. Makes makes me happy every single day. I love that. And I hope whenever you have a book written about you, the tagline is a hundred bags of awesomeness. Absolutely. <laughs> it's like the teacher story, Pascal, a hundred bags comment. of awesomeness. <laughs> Well, my uh, my rise to teaching story is I always loved teaching. I used to play school when I was a little girl. And then when I went to college, um, I learned how much I love science. And when I graduated, I was like Pascal and Amy off to try a different path. I was going to go to veterinary school. And I was working for a summer as a park service ranger and uh, my duties were split half time doing interpretive services and half time doing wildlife management. 
And I really loved the interpretive services. And I kind of like thought the wildlife part was cool, but I couldn't wait to get back to doing the teaching Mm -hmm. at the park. And that helped me kind of have an epiphany about maybe I shouldn't just go off to vet school just yet and took a year, did a lot of um, kind of list making and pro con comparison and thinking about what kind of career path I wanted, talking to my boyfriend of the time, who's now my husband, about what I should do. And, you know, my my subconscious knew I w- wanted to be a teacher, but actually coming to that decision uh, was hard. And then once I decided to be a teacher, there's been no looking back. It's the best decision I've ever made. Awesome. All in. <laughs> so awesome. fascinating that like so many of us tried because like I thought about going to law school it, okay. after undergrad uh, because I didn't think that I would make a good teacher because I didn't uh, the philosophy that was being taught in my education courses at college. I was like, I don't think I'm going to fit this mold that they want me to be. And so I was looking at other things and I had other, unfortunately, heard from teachers like, oh, you're too smart to be a teacher, which is like such an opposite, terrible cultural message that sometimes Mm -hmm. we're feeding people. But um, I remember like I was not I was not not looking forward to student teaching, thought I was going to be terrible. And I went into student teaching and fell in love with this profession. Like it was almost like I was so frustrated of why, like, why couldn't I get out of this major? Like I had tried multiple times to to get out and I couldn't. And I almost like, I wrestled with, with God. And I was like, why did you keep me in? And he was like, because I created you to teach. It was the easiest semester of my life. And I'm not saying that teaching is easy by any means. It was natural. Mm-hmm. It was what I was made to do. And it's so cool and reaffirming to hear the same story of like all of us, like try to get out and it like sucks you back in. And I think that's the story of education. Like the people who are in education, it's because it's just in us, right? We're not doing it for the money. We're not doing it. For, I mean, for like sure. whatever. I think that's so cool to hear. Thank you. That black hole vortex, man. I, it sucks yeah. you in and it keeps you there. <laughs> and then that's the tagline for your book. That's right. The black hole vortex. Black. Yeah. That's right. Um, so I'm a teacher considering applying for the AEF. What do you tell me? Just do it. <laughs> um, I would say make your love and passion for learning and kids come through yes awesome spread that you've done and think about it from the audience of people who want to see that passion of you as an educator and want to see that you are not only passionate about education and kids but you're passionate learning and i think um that that will shine through in the breadth of information that you share. So really try to spread out that wealth. People forget, you know, they're like, oh, but it was just this. And I'm thinking, no, it wasn't. That was actually really cool. That was pivotal. You ended up running with that class and that workshop and running a whole district wide, blah, 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 because of that. That was pivotal. That's not little things, you know? So um, really taking a good look at the, the breadth of things you've done. Awesome. 
Um, Gretel, I know you have to leave, but so this is my last question for everyone. What brings you joy? I like to surround myself with living things. And so I, my classroom is full of living things, young people who are optimistic and excited and funny. And so that brings me joy. Awesome. Thank you so much. Kelly Day, <laughs> what brings you joy? People. Speaking to people brings me joy. So getting to speak to these other Department of Energy fellows is just, I'm going to leave this on such a high. I hope that, like, I feel like we've had a wonderful, unique experience getting to be in the office that we got to be in. Um, I would be remiss if we didn't give a shout out to Jan Tyler, who was our mentor, who led us through this process like this whole crazy year experience, some of us beyond. Um, she really gave us a lot of trust to follow our passions and joy um, and a lot of freedom. And I couldn't ask for a better mentor. And uh, I couldn't, I just like this, talking to other teachers, empowering other teachers. That's why I think I am so lucky to have landed where I have landed. Awesome. Pascal, do you want to try again? What brings you joy? What I said earlier is is my um is my students, which basically are hormones walking on legs. Um, they bring me joy and energy <laughs> every day. I mean, no matter what, naughty or nice, it don't matter. You know, three seconds later, they're like, "Hi, it's better." Amy, <laughs> what brings you joy? Finding familiar in the unfamiliar. Um. So I was thinking about all the things that I really love. And um, I've always been a city person. Um, but one of my favorite things ever is to be walking down a street in a city and be like, that's a sycamore tree. Like I can say the name of that tree. Or like being in a forest and being like, oh, that's a, you know, a whatever, an orb weaver spider. Uh, yeah. Like just knowing the names of things in places that are very unfamiliar. And I think that translates to people as well. One of my favorite things is to be in a large group of people and for someone to get up and make a comment or ask a question and say, oh, I'm so-and-so. I grew up in Detroit. And I'm like, I'm from Detroit too. I want to talk to them about Detroit. And so those little my like people. glimmers <laughs> of like connection and, mm -hmm. oh, this is something I know. And then also seeing the more... I learn as I go through life, the more often those familiar points in the unfamiliar happen. And they're so, they're so fun. Awesome. I love that. Well, Amy and Pascal and Gretel and Kelly, thank you. Thank you so much for um, this conversation today. It has been a blast. It has been a joy speaking with all of you and learning about your experiences with the Albert Einstein Distinguished Educator Fellowship Program. Um, and we're going to have more of these conversations. So for folks who are listening, stay tuned because we'll have more fellows on to talk about their experiences. So thank you all so much. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. thank you. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the ORISE Feature Cast. To learn more about the Oak Ridge Institute for Science and Education, visit orise.orau.gov or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Orise Connect. If you like the Orise feature cast, give us a review wherever you listen to podcasts.
The Oak Ridge Institute for Science and Education is managed by ORAU for the U.S. Department of Energy.